Welcome to a special Retro Rewind episode of the Venture Brothers podcast with Ilana Levin, that's me, and Professor Stephen Atwell. Do you love the Venture Brothers cartoon but are afraid of missing the plethora of historical references and layers of meaning behind each episode? Join pop culture and history experts Ilana Levin and Stephen Atwell. His secret identity is that he's an actual historian. For our Venture Brothers podcast, wherein we examine episodes of the TV show, which is currently in a Schrodinger's box of HBO animation release confusion. Now, listeners know we've covered every episode of season six and seven. And since then, we've periodically recorded episodes about older episodes of the series, as listeners have requested them. Today, we're covering the oldest episode yet, Return to Spider Skull Island, which was the finale of season one. So get your motor running. Head out on the highway. And let's do the time warp again back to 2004 for a special rewind episode of the show. Thank you for not stopping me from singing. It was very important. I thought it might be. So we usually avoid doing recaps, but since the episode that we're covering is old enough to vote and get drafted, we are including more of a recap. Also, there's spoilers, including spoilers for the iconic 1969 movie that this episode itself already spoiled. Want to start us with the recap, Stephen? Sure. So the show starts with the team returning to the Venture Compound on the X-1 from an unseen mission at a local cineplex. It's really fun because you can hear a panicked citizen calling 911 and saying that Rocky is killing everyone. And the, the, the operator is like, is it Rocky 7 with Ivan Drago? <laughs> and he's like, no, it's Rocky, Rocky Horror. And that is when it is revealed as they exit the X-1 are cast in their Rocky Horror Picture Show costumes, which fills me with great joy. Rocky Horror Picture Show began as a play in London theater in 1973, but most of us know it from the movie in 1975 that really launched Tim Curry's career. And this is not just a piece of 1970s cultural ephemera. This is a like a subculture that was created by this movie. And the New York that forged the Venture Brothers cartoon and scene in which folks like Doc Hammer were operating in was still in New York, where Rock and Rocky Horror Picture Show was continuing to be shown in the Waverly Theater and other theaters in the west side of Manhattan through like, I mean, to the day, practically. It was very much a cult movie, and people would go to midnight showings of it, and the fans would come again and again, and people started actually interacting with the screen it was sort of, it's sort of like a meta-textual movie at this point because of the way casts would interact with the performers on the screen. So you'd have people dressed in costumes in the audience, acting and singing along with the musical on the stage. Frequent podcast guest Arturo Garcia is a bit of a, a famous figure in the Rocky Horror Picture Show scene, actually. He runs a conference. But it was so good to see that movie referenced here because it is such a counterculture and specifically queer culture thing very New York, even though that's not where the show began. And I loved seeing how the show chose who would be in which costume. Obviously, the most obvious one was you were going to have Brock Samson as Rocky himself, the Frankenstein's monster who is strong and beautiful, golden, and that is inevitable. And I enjoy Brock's wig greatly. For th the doctor plays the doctor, Dr. Frankenfurter, you know, is Tim Curry's character who is a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. I want to point out to people that at the time this was made, one, like movies never did that, and two, that was the correct language that was used by people at the time, right? 
Richard O'Brien himself is queer and is from that scene and was using the language that people who were transgender at the time were using to refer to themselves. But anyway, so Doc Venture is in Frankenfurter drag, exactly. And then the boys come out as two of Frankenfurter's henchmen. Hank is Columbia of a tap dancing girl, fangirl, played by Little Nell in the movie. Dean is Riff Raff with the wig and everything. We later have it revealed that Helper is Magenta. She's like the one in the the maid uniform in the show. And I just get such a kick out of seeing who they cast in which role for it. And I have to wonder, because the boys are so culturally insulated, like, do they know Rocky Horror Picture Show? Because you know Doc, like Dr. Venture knows Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like that's very much a piece of art of his generation as well as ours and continues to be my understanding. I would say to folks, if you haven't seen the movie, even if you can't go to a live performance of Rocky Horror Picture Show, like watch the movie at home. That is the first way I saw it. It is an excellent movie with an excellent score. You'll also get to see Meatloaf, Rest in Peace, and it is just really queer. And I know for a lot of us, that movie, well, we'll talk more. I'll talk more about the movie's queerness later. Anyway, go ahead. This is where I have to embarrassedly admit that I've never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show. But Stephen, you're like kind of a theater kid. I know, I know. It was, and it was like very much a thing that like alternative kids were doing in high school and college Mm -hmm. in my time. But for whatever reason, I just never took the opportunity. Like there were midnight screenings that were around that I could have gone to. Yeah, no, totally. But I I just never, I never took the opportunity. Well, Uh, bit of a hole in my i mean you know i i know the the you know the sort of pop cultural osmosis yeah um, you know i've seen like youtube clips of you know let's do the time warp again mm-hmm. and you know quivering with anticipation and stuff like that but i've never seen the the whole thing oh, that's um so funny so this sort of previously on the venture brothers segment also has like two other riffs one is they're clearly doing a scooby-doo reference because old man jenkins turns about turns out to be the phantom of the cineplex and this leads seamlessly into a ghostbusters reference where doc is pissed off that it did turn out to be a man in a rubber mask because the Cineplex owner will not pay him for the use of his experimental, essentially, proton pack backpack. I forget what he, he uses for terminology instead. So it's at this very moment where Doc is taking off the backpack that all of a sudden he begins to suffer serious abdominal pains that... Uh, oh, wait, just to jump back yeah, a ahead. second. So, something you said is... Yeah, like it's definitely doing a Scooby-Doo thing, but the fact that they're talking about it being a phantom does also make me think of Brian De Palma's 1974 cult film Phantom of the Paradise, (laughs) which is a movie that has a lot in common with Rocky Horror Picture Show. Of course you were going to mention that. Did did I ruin a movement for you? No, I was going to say, why why did I not think that you were going to mention one of your favorite movies? So as Dr. Venture is suddenly taken with abdominal pains, that he thinks are a a hernia that's popped out. Brock decides to take Dr. Venture to the hospital in the X-1. Along the way, the brothers, Hank and Dean, mistakenly think that Dr. Venture is pregnant due to his distended abdomen. At the hospital, which is choked by all of the casualties that Brock inflicted during the Rocky Horror Picture Show, hence why everyone 
in costume, you know, immediately freaks out and, and runs away when they arrive. Yeah, the, the, the waiting room is full of people, just random people in Rocky Horror costumes. It's a fabulous scene. Dr. Venture is instead taken to the maternity ward because the ORs are, are filled up with Brock's casualties, which further convinces the brothers that Dr. Venture is pregnant. Brock sends the kids to Dr. Orpheus's apartment with a bunch of money that he's been keeping in his golden, I don't know what you would, underwear. <laughs> it's not a, you know, it's like Superman underwear. Anyway. Trunks. They're trunks. Trunks. Yes. Thank you. The same trunks as Rocky. He's got his golden trunks. Love it. Right. In the next scene, Brock and Doc learn that the doctor was able to remove a large benign tumor from Rusty's stomach, but that the tumor disappeared. And while Rusty is kind of having a mini freak out about this, and says the excellent line, you know, I want a second opinion. Oh, wait, I'm a doctor. I can give myself one. <laughs> the X1 plane in the background lifts off without anybody noticing. Meanwhile, at Dr. Orpheus's apartment, after enjoying a tea and mini pizza rolls and the unappetizing prospect of a TV permanently tuned to Animal Planet because the remote has disappeared from this mortal frame. Hank and Dean settle down for the night in sleeping bags and discuss the day's events. While Dean is initially excited at the thought of a new little brother, Hank doesn't want a baby to mess up their adventuring lifestyle and decides to Way. Dean doesn't want to because he has this weird fantasy of comforting Triana during a thunderstorm, but Hank manages to convince him to run away with him through some rather dubious logic that they will somehow be adopted by Dr. Orpheus, which will make Triana and Dean both legally and somehow biologically siblings. So the next morning, Triana, who has been out all night and is still wearing her outfit from yesterday, tells Dr. Orpheus that the boys ran away. She's completely nonchalant. I fucking love her so much. Orpheus is mortified, of course, as having failed as a host, and Triana calms him down and convinces him to follow the boys, but discreetly at a distance, which is where we get truly one of the pinnacles of Dr. Orpheus's lines in the show, an iconic line read from Dr. Orpheus voice actor Stephen Radatazzi, in which he says, Get me my blue windbreaker. This episode is just constantly amazing Dr. Orpheus lines that people reference like all the time. Like this yeah, is just some of his best work. It really is. On the road, Hank and Dean debate whether to check out a haunted mansion on a hilltop, but decide to leave their boy adventuring life behind for a life of freedom. And they go to a diner instead. I should mention, you know, at this point, these guys are both in their hover bikes going down the road together. And as soon as they begin talking about giving up their life for a life of freedom, I remember from when I saw this episode, my brain was like, I wonder if they're going to do an Easy Rider riff. And as the episode progressed, boy, did they start to do an Easy Rider riff. Starred Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. The 1969 pivotal independent movie really was central part of launching what is considered the new Hollywood era of filmmaking during the 70s. Very much independently made and produced a little bit of background on what that is. Easy Rider is not just a movie about two bikers on a road trip to find America. It is the movie about two bikers on a road trip to find America, produced by Peter Fonda, directed by Dennis Hopper. 
initially based on a script by Terry Southern, who wrote Candy and he wrote Dr. Strangelove. And then Dennis Hopper was really reworking on it, but the script also had a lot of space for improv, which means that both Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda ended up with writing credits and very much launched the career of Jack Nicholson. Very nonlinear story, a movie that was almost entirely about vibes and feeling and the soundtrack. And in fact, the way the movie did soundtracks completely changed the way Hollywood approached soundtracks in the future. And not much plot. It's got such an acid sensibility. It starred Peter Fonda as Wyatt, who went by the biker name of Captain America. And he had like an American flag helmet, which of course Hank has in this. And then Dennis Hopper as Billy, who is a referencing Billy the Kid. And he's got more of a cowboy outfit. And while we don't have Dean going straight up cowboy. He is wearing an old school football helmet, which is what Jack Nicholson's character, the the lawyer who who he doesn't have a biker he doesn't have a biker helmet. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So they're combining the three characters because then yeah, they also pick up when when the characters in the movie get arrested and thrown in jail for quote unquote parading without a permit. Sort of a a a local man who's a lawyer who's got left wing politics helps them get out of jail and decides to go on the road with them. And that's played by Jack Nicholson. It was really his big breakthrough role. If you're going to do a riff on going to find America, like for two young men, this is a movie that would reference that. And again, this sort of story is so hardwired into popular culture that like you can do it without even knowing that you're doing it at this point. I know I'll talk more about the about easy rider later but yeah like when you see the two of them on a bike you're gonna have to think about this at the diner in another scene that strongly references easy rider hank and dean are enjoying the grown-up freedom of being able to order whatever food they like including pancakes in the afternoon what rebels without a cause dr orpheus of course is surveilling them from a distance and two locals are harassing orpheus over being a long hair and basically implying that he's gay because he has long hair Orpheus punishes them by trapping their souls inside a hope boy figurine, which was a kind of figurine you could get out of a vending machine back then, and also just sort of in the 90s in general. What people should remember about those guys harassing Orpheus as being a long hair is like anybody whose hair was as long as like the Beatles were in 1965 was considered a long hair, even in 1969. And so you and I in 20... 22 look at dr orpheus and like that's not a long-haired person to us but it was that and so it's sort of a to me a really funny call back to the idea that anybody who doesn't have uh, a brush cut you know anybody whose head isn't like shaved practically is a long hair and then of course you know dr strange was always more of a bohemian superhero regardless but also by intervening in that moment dr orpheus is keeping them from beating up our two biker boys in the moment The boys get back on the road. They get pulled over by a cop who arrests them for driving 15 into 65, truancy from school, and unauthorized use of super science. Elaborating a bit more on the Easy Rider theme here, like, it's all about locals and cops stopping people and giving them the shit. And like that whole, we're just trying to be free versus law and order trying to like rain on your parade is just like what 60s counterculture media is saying nine times out of 10. And it was fun to see the boys who don't understand what that means responding to it in a completely po-faced sort of way, you know? So back at the hospital, Brock and Dr. Venture are discharged only to find that the X-1 jet has been stolen from the parking lot. They return home where Brock puts Doc in bed 
and provides him with some comforts while he goes to make some food. In the kitchen, Brock finds that the oven has been stripped for parts and goes to investigate in the lab where he is knocked out from behind. Meanwhile, Doc has another one of his recurring nightmares that have been kind of seeded throughout the first season about devouring a twin in the womb and hallucinates pooping out of the ghost of his father, who tells him there is another venture. Rusty wakes to find that a cyborg made of spare parts from the venture compound with a very familiar-looking red-haired human head is stepping on his chest and trying to crush his ribcage. And also kind of looking a lot like Robocop in that character design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Cyborg reveals himself to be Dr. Venture's twin brother, who Rusty consumed in the womb. This is a real medical phenomenon known as Vanished Twin Syndrome, which was a rejected title for the episode. Um, Hmm. And he has basically escaped from inside Rusty's body because Rusty's habitual drug use has rendered the body uninhabitable. Doc manages to escape via his bed panic room system, but it turns out that his twin, who gives himself the name Jonas Venture Jr., knows all of his passwords because he just heard Rusty say them. So he winds up chasing Rusty all the way through the Venture lab, and the two trade accusations of the twin having ruined Rusty's health. Most notably, Rusty is pissed off because he thinks that it's the reason that he went bald, whereas Jonas Jr. blames Rusty for stealing his entire life. Meanwhile, Brock wakes up to find that he's been chained to the roof of his car and has to talk helper through the process of driving his stick shift classic muscle car. The two get up to some hijinks, but eventually manage to crush through the lab's window to rescue Doc just in the nick of time and smash the cyborg body with his car. This is where Hammer and Public do a very heavy John Woo riff, complete with slow-mo, white birds flying, and a dew dropping off of a rose. John Woo, he was still like a little bit zeitgeist in that moment too? Or oh yeah, like, I mean, yeah. this was like pretty close to Face Off and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, being like really big action movies. So having destroyed the cyborg body, Brock goes to crush Jonas Jr.'s head under his foot for having knocked him unconscious and wrecked his car. But Doc unexpectedly orders him to stop using the logic that because Jonas Jr. came from Rusty's body, Brock has to guard his body. At this point, Dr. Orpheus arrives to inform them of Hank and Dean's imprisonment. Meanwhile, at the prison, and this is sort of scattered throughout the episode, the monarch issues instructions to 21 and 24 in the visiting room to harass Dr. Girlfriend over the phone, blow up the cocoon, send the body of Wonder Boy to Captain Sunshine, and lastly, kill the Venture Brothers. Later on, we see the monarch running a scared straight program for a group 
of unimpressed would-be supervillains, which tracks with the fact that, you know, statistically, scared straight programs not only don't deter kids from a life of crime, but in, in some studies actually worsen things by giving kids more of a kind of connections to the criminal underworld. So he... And it, this whole thing was like super big when you and I were growing up. You know, oh, yeah. It was like that and, thing. that and dare. Yeah. Yeah. Like every single thing they tried to do to mitigate youth issues was the worst and dumbest idea possible. But it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, they're, they're doing a satire of it here in a way that I think if you live through the 90s, you'd be like, yep, that same dumb shit. So while he's running the Scared Straight program, the monarch unexpectedly encounters Hank Dean, has to buy back Dean from King Gorilla, King- aka Gorilla Grodd, basically. The yeah, super villain. And he then sort of sits the boys down. And in addition to apologizing for putting a hit out on them, convinces the boys to return to their life of adventuring rather than going down the wrong path. Ultimately, Hank and Dean are bailed out by their father, who drives back to the Venture compound behind them in Dr. Orpheus's Volkswagen Beetle to give the boys a feeling of independence. Yeah. So Jonas Jr. is also in the car with them. So when they're discussing like how to split up the, the Venture estate, Rusty offers to give him... I think helper and says that he can ride around on his back like Master Blaster. Gotcha. So Master Blaster is a character's plural from Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. And he's a little person and a very large person. And the little person is the brains and the very large person is the brawn. And they are enforcers from Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. So it is sort of a visual that I imagine them drawing from. But then they decided that no, actually, Beyond the Thunderdome is not the way to go. They are going to be giving Spider Skull Island, the episode's namesake, to Jonas Jr. Hank and Dean are still out there on their bikes, driving ahead of the car, discussing their new uncle and wondering if he's now going to be buying them Joven Musk, which is exactly the ancient cologne from the 70s and 80s that your new uncle would buy you. And 21 and 24 are going past them and they do something straight out of Easy Rider. Hank and Dean get accidentally shot by 21 and 24 who are trying to ask them for directions and it causes the hover bikes to explode. Then the credits roll over the explosion bike and the music is a pastiche of the Ballad of Easy Rider. So the Ballad of Easy Rider is a song that was expressly made for the movie. Originally, Peter Fonda had wanted to use the Bob Dylan song it's all right, Ma, I'm only bleeding, but he couldn't get the licensing. He even went to ask Roger McGuinn of The Birds, a band that had done a lot of famous Bob Dylan covers, to do a cover for the movie, but that didn't work out either. Uh, so Fonda asked Dylan if maybe he would make a new song for the movie, and Dylan was not particularly interested. He, however, did scribble out a few lines on a napkin and handed them to Fonda and told him to, quote, give this to McGuinn, he'll know what to do with it. And Roger McGuinn did know what to do with it, because he turned those lyrics into the following melody. The river flows, it flows to the sea. Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. Flow, river flow. Uh, And thus was the core of the song, The Ballad of Easy Rider. As the song goes on, it actually gets more literal into the theme of the movie, especially when I call out the uh, verse, um, all he wanted was to be free 
and that's the way it turned out to be. So yeah, really heavy on the symbolism from the movie and its themes around the dashed idealism and hope of youth. As you can see, this is carried on very much in the Venture Brothers and the musical pastiche. I mean, I know me singing isn't the same as an actual audio clip from the song, but I think you'll kind of see how aligned it is. So what you've just heard me describe as the end of this episode is the end of Easy Rider. Now, what happens in Easy Rider specifically is the bikers are Billy and Wyatt are on a two-lane high top. Local men in a pickup truck are trying to scare Billy and Wyatt for being dirty long hairs, trying to scare them off the road by shooting at them with a shotgun. At first, the drivers seem like they're just playing, but after they cause a bad crash for Billy and see Wyatt driving off to get help, they then deliberately go and shoot Wyatt. Wyatt's wireless motorcycle flies through the air, comes apart, lands in a big gulf of flames, and you see the bike burning on the side of the road, roll credits, play the Ballad of Easy Rider over it. It's beautiful. It's sad. Everyone's crying. The dream of the 60s is now over. And the Venture Brothers instead is playing a really good pastiche of the Ballad of Easy Rider. I mean, as, as someone who grew up with very close associations with Easy Rider, just seeing that map out on this last episode just cracked me the fuck up continually. And then at the very end, after the credits run, Doc Ventures tells Brock to grab the boys' clothes from the wreckage of their burning hoverbikes. End of season one. So that's this episode. So now we're going to talk about the themes of the episode. So Ilana, do you want to start? Us yeah. Off? So Easy Rider is the like the huge counterculture movie from 69. You know, it, everybody was going to it and getting high and having sex in the theater, basically. This was the most authentically druggy feature film that had been made. There had been other hippie exploitation movies that had been out. And there'd certainly been super underground cinema, like Jack Smith's work in the 50s and 60s that he like, you know, got like arrested and got burned for making. But this movie, you know, it, it, it definitely was partially enabled by the Monkees movie Head, which is also itself very much a drug movie, but this was, you know, an independent an independent movie that they made and really uses sort of drug logic and dream logic for pieces of the storytelling. The scene in which Peter Fonda is freaking out on acid in the cemetery, crying about his mother, is in fact Peter Fonda freaking out in a cemetery, crying about his mother. Now, in part, like Dennis was like, can you go have a nervous breakdown about your mom here, please? And Peter Fonda was like, well, my mom did commit suicide, so yes, I can do that and then proceeded to do so. So it has this like authenticity in some of its portrayal of drug stuff that you wouldn't have seen in like the movie, the movie where the guys met beforehand was actually called The Trip, which was a hippie exploitation movie that was about people going on a drug trip, but made by people who probably had never done acid, although almost certainly had smoked pot. And so it, I think a, a lot of people gravitated towards it as being a more accurate depiction of drug experience and counterculture than a lot of the other media that they would have that was shown to them and certainly like folks who were younger who would have seen it in the theater like people who were teenagers when this movie came out it was like a big thing it's the kind of movie that i think people would assume it has this very idealistic perspective but it actually doesn't it's constantly undercutting the hippie dream and undercutting the american dream as well and i think that as a young person watching the movie you know you can see the, oh, like there's these hippies and they go off and they have this commune together and 
there's this moment, I think, where Peter Fonda's character says, you know, I really believe in those guys. I think it, I think they're going to make it okay. Or maybe it's Dennis Hopper. But one of them says it. And of course, watching it as an adult, you're like, no, they're all going to starve to death, actually, or perhaps become Charles Manson cult. And I think watching the movie as an adult, even at the time, you probably would have thought that versus watching it as a teenager at the time, you might have had the more I- idealistic take on it. Because like I said, like I think people think the movie is super idealistic, but it's actually not. It's kind of the opposite of what it's trying to do. The movie also sort of supposes that the hippie dream is the real American dream and then sort of shows how it's unobtainable. And so it's all about losing your innocence, being disillusioned with America, being disillusioned with youth. And then you have the Venture Brothers boys sort of kind of trying to disillusion themselves of their life as they've been so far. You know, it's funny, the show doesn't do a ton overall with baby boomer focused stuff like Easy Rider, because that isn't necessarily like the riff that they're going for. Doc Adventure and his crew are baby boomers, but they're on the younger end of it. They're not, they're like more borderline, you know, and this is very solidly hippie generation. So it's funny because like it's like I don't I don't know that Doc knew that he was an easy rider. When, when this was happening. The boys definitely didn't know they were an Easy Rider when this was happening, but I think a lot of viewers did. I, I saw Easy Rider slightly accidentally when I was probably in second or third grade because it was Yom Kippur. Oh, wow, that's way too young. Uh, yeah, but you know, I turned, I turned out okay, with a few exceptions. Yeah, yeah, you don't show this to your second or third grader. I think basically everybody was really low blood sugar because the adults were fasting for Yom Kippur. And I think, <laughs> like in my family household, any car trip began with somebody putting in the soundtrack of Easy Rider and 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 so i think my dad was just thinking like oh they've got easy rider we listen to that soundtrack constantly i have low blood sugar let's put this movie on the television while the adults go finish making uh the breakfast and that'll be fine so yeah at a very young impressionable age i watched some locals shoot hippies dead and hippies who of course i identified with and i'm not going to say that didn't have something to do with me having certain fears about getting shot by people from driving in a pickup truck when i go through rural areas however i'm also queer and jewish and dress in a counterculture fashion so am i really that irrational I will say this though, one of the things that this show does and that a lot of culture does in general is assumes that certain people with certain physical presentations, accents, and class affectations are more likely to be bigots than other people. And that's not really true. (laughs) I think that it's a common theme that urban people who have education, we tend to do is that like the bigots and the haters are the so-called rednecks. And that's not really fair. You know, I mean, the movie itself is drawing on that particular archetype in the characters who shoot them. I mean, realistically, the people who should be shooting them, right, is like the people who are causing the war in Vietnam, not, you know, the guys of the pickup truck. But the movie does have locals in it who are portrayed positively, like Jack Nicholson's character and the girls in town. So it's not just saying like, if you're a rural person, you're a hater and backwards. I hate when people act like those sorts of things only happen in rural areas. It's just so easy for people who have cultural capital, who don't want to be seen as racist or bigoted to to ascribe all of those qualities to people who are not like us. Okay. Anywho... But anyway, the episode really has those guys, the rural guys with their trucker hats, beat the heels throughout it. And, you know, I think like 
this, you know, this movie is very much about the generation gap at the time between World War II generation and baby boomers. And then this one is like, it's just, it's interesting to me because like I said, there really aren't baby boomers in this per se. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, to me, Doc is kind of a stand in hammer in public as like, you know, early gen Xers who like still kind of remember like who are old enough to remember like the tail end of seventies culture. Mm -hmm. But who like the the heart of growing up was was the eighties? Yeah, so it's like for us. I mean, they're older than me, but I very much identify with this as my parents were pretty sure that it was still the sixties through most of my life. Like, like the sixties were just right behind you, and the the cultural weight of that generation was so immense. The fact that everybody our age knows all the sixties stuff, despite not having been alive then, because they were so many people with so much cultural monopoly. It was unavoidable. And so it's in some ways, it's not about their generation. It's about them thinking about what they were growing, growing up around and those stories. But, you know, it's also about like how your idealism is going to be undercut by the cold reality of life. And so it makes a lot of sense that the finale of season one would end on that theme, the show all about things not living up to your dreams and expectations. Yeah, and it's kind of this interesting commentary on sort of adolescence and maturity, because like in addition to easy rider, you know, greatest generation baby boom split, you know, hippies versus the square split, you know, Hank and Dean are like trying out new identities that that are outside of the box of being kind of hardy boy, uh, boy adventurers. Mm -hmm. And then they get cut down and rebooted as we've talked about in in past episodes you know it takes a while before that kind of forward progress is allowed to continue rather than get rolled Mm -hmm. back and especially by like season six we're really getting a sort of sense you know who hank and dean are becoming in terms of people and i think it kind of layers in nicely with the sort of long-running theme you know childhood nostalgia and the failure of adulthood. Yeah, yeah. It's just so funny that it's also childhood nostalgia for me as a person who was, you know, not alive during any of this. To be clear, I have not, I meant to rewatch it before we taped this episode, but I don't know if you noticed, we had an election in New York. I know we always have an election in New York, but we extra bonus just had an election in New York and the conference I work for just happened. Did not have a chance to watch it before. But like I said, I feel like this movie is in my bones in a certain way. So I think I probably did you good in my explanations of it. But Easy Rider, it's just wonderfully evocative of a particular time and place and aesthetic. The gorgeous soundtrack, it means so much. So the next theme that I kind of wanted to talk about was this theme of brotherhood, which, you know, has been there from the beginning like this is the venture brothers show and hank and dean are the kind of protagonist but you know it gets some like interesting refractions in this episode which is rusty coming to terms with having a brother creates this sort of doubling effect you know hank and dean's relationship is sort of paralleled or commented upon by more contentious relationship with his brother, which will run for a couple seasons before JJ dies. And, you know, the 
the relationship between Rusty and JJ is, you know, again about failure versus success and the complicated question of family. But it also kind of sets up this, you know, relationship because as we learn in season six and season seven, the in some ways, the true Venture Brothers have always been this sort of unbreakable dyad of Rusty and the Monarch, mm -hmm. who are, at the same time, you know, we sort of get the first sense that, like, Hank and Dean have, you know, because otherwise they're kind of a little bit palette swaps in the early part of the season. Yeah. And here we get a sense that they're, like, more individual people, where, like, Hank sort of shows some of his first indications of being, like, interested in girls. Dean still has, you know, his plot line with Triana to go through. Dean is also still more attached to the world of, like, super science and boy adventuring, whereas, like, Hank really wants to walk away from mm -hmm. all of it. And that has is something that has only become more intense as Dean goes to college and, you know... Uh, is is wrestling with like being the anointed heir whereas like hank feels you know we talked about this in a later episode hank feels kind of neglected by rusty and sort of more to live the life brock who is sort of his substitute father mm -hmm. so you know that's kind of what i wanted to touch on in the theme of brotherhood the this idea of like doubling and commenting. Yeah, I don't feel like I realized when I first watched the episode, I was like, oh my God, they killed the Venture Brothers. I was like, no, no, no. Now you've got two different Venture Brothers as Doc and Jonas. I mean, just thinking about the show also in terms of the chronology of the season, I don't know if they thought they'd be renewed or not, but uh, it was a pretty interesting way to end season one. Yeah, it kind of leaves an interesting, bittersweet note that like Rusty and Jonas have reconciled. Um, Hank and Dean are supposedly dead, but, you know, even at the time, like when this was initially airing in the, the hiatus between seasons one and two, they were like fans were speculating, you know, how Hank and Dean would be brought back. Mm. So, you know, people were all kind of anticipating where the show would go. I also say one more thing, though, about also this, the, the shows where the show is in context of series is that like we you know when i began watching this episode you're like holy fuck that's the season one art there's so much less detail that they're able to do the animation is more rudimentary and the show is still gorgeous because the character design work and the set design work and all that is really good but you can definitely see it's a newer rar show and it doesn't have as much character work done in it i think one of the one of the things that is sort of disappointing in it is that it kind of the kind the show does this thing where it'll have bigoted jokes that are being made by people who are assholes. And I think of that as a way to have your cake and eat it too when it comes to voicing things that are ugly. Because you go ahead and you get to make the joke, but the responsibility of having been the person who made that joke isn't on you. It's now on the antagonist, right? So like Dr. Ventures says something racist about the doctor who has an Indian accent. And that's not the show that's having an anti-Indian joke. That's Doc, who's who we all know is an asshole who's making an anti-Indian joke, that kind of thing. Similarly, you know, one of the big themes of the episode is gay panic. And the way this show handles gay panic is extremely 2008 show by heterosexual men who probably have a good amount of queer friends but are themselves straight in it being a bigot you know being a homophobe does mean you're a dick and are beneath content and you know should get 
have should have your soul sucked and put into the body of a homies figurine. But the fear of being gay and the fear of gay sex is still seen as a legitimate thing to joke about when making the prison rape jokes in the or like the idea that Gorilla Grodd is going to rape the boys in the prison because Gorilla Grodd is is gay. I mean, the show is treating the rural guys with their trucker hats in the diner, you know, they're being homophobic. The two guys in the in the diner drop, you know, multiple hard F wow. bombs, which I don't think you'd get no. away with today. And so people say like, oh, well, it's okay for them to use the F word because it's bad guys who are saying it and they're punished. And it's like, yeah, but you did kind of enjoy using it, didn't you? But like, so as much as like those guys in the, th- those harassers in the diner, you know, they're obviously bad guys. Like it's still enjoying itself for getting to say and play with those tropes. The show, I don't think would do that now, you know, like they, the creative team has grown and changed and people have learned and it just feels very 2004, you know, to have it still be that way. The show has queer characters now, you know, like it's, it doesn't do that in the same way, but I did want to call attention to that. And then, you know, the theme of gay panic is also a theme of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, a pivotal thing with Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's a story in which a queer character who is, you know, gender fluid gets a couple of straight squares to realize that they're actually kind of queer and that they like dressing in over-the-top costumes and that they get off on having sex with people in a ra- of a range of genders, etc. And, you know, at the end of the movie, Frankenfurter, spoiler for 1975 movie that you've probably seen, Frankenfurter is brought down you know, is brought down by his henchmen for wanting different things than him. But you see how being exposed to queer culture has completely changed the lives of Brad and Janet. They can't be their square selves anymore. And, you know, throughout the show, they have moments of queer panic. And in each moment of queer panic, Rocky Horror, it brings it back to, but like, isn't this good? You want to do this. This is like fun. This is what being alive is about. So I think that having the Rocky Horror picture show costumes in the beginning is actually thematically significant to the episode in that way. The the other moment, you know, speaking of of wanting to have your cake and eat it too, is that they do a gay panic joke um, Brock being mistaken for uh, Rusty's partner. And, you know, the, the humor there is that, like, Brock is the embodiment of like macho heterosexuality you know he you know kind of has this like little freak out and i'm not sure how much of that has to do with the fact that like patrick warburton is known for having conservative for hollywood politics mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there's a i think something of a tendency in in the long the venture brothers for like hammer and public to kind of tease him a little bit by like making his character have to negotiate things that like make make him uncomfortable yeah. like i'm thinking all the stuff with like hunter gathers but like you said it's having your cake and eating it too because like the joke is oh you know a, a macho guy like brock wouldn't be gay and of course and- it's obvious that nothing could possibly be more macho than men with men like <laughs> you don't get more men than that guys <laughs> but yeah yeah you know, but it's also interesting because I think about how the boys just think it's completely reasonable and possible that their father is pregnant. And then the show is sort of saying like, well, obviously he's not pregnant, but actually no, their dad is pre- by any definition of pregnancy, 
Their dad was pregnant. Yeah. And, you know, despite being the most sheltered and like raised by, I mean, you know, they're raised by recordings Mm -hmm. of Jonas Venture Sr., who is like the embodiment of like 1960s, you know, type A madmen. You know, they come out of it without those kind of judgments about people. Whereas to a lesser extent, Rusty, who've like been out in the world in in the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, are, you know, close-minded. I mean, it's played as a joke that Doc, the dog venture has to go to the maternity ward, but because the rest of the, the hospital is too full of victims of the Rocky Horror Picture Show riot. But like, it actually, he was in the maternity ward, but maybe had a maternity doctor dealt with the tumor, they might've been like, I kind of think this is probably a baby. <laughs> so the other theme that I wanted to talk about is the uh, Claremontian style setting up plot threads that are going to pay off in the extreme, extreme long term. Um, and, you know, often this is an example of sort of kismet or like retroactive continuity mm-hmm. where... In later seasons, Hammer and Public went back to their earlier work and sort of looked for, like, what are characters or names or illusions that, like, were in the background in the first couple seasons that we can now bring to the fore. So the monarch brings up Captain Sunshine's beloved Wonder Boy. Uh, At the time, just a kind of standard joke about, like, supervillain arch-nemesis, But in season four, we get this like multi-layered pastiche where like Wonder Boy and Captain Sunshine are like this weird riff. Batman and Robin seen through the lens of Frederick Wortham, but they're also the super friends and it's also, you know, Batman and the Jokers, weird homoerotic Tension, and it's just kind of like amazing what they're able to kind of pull from a one sentence description. It really, it really feels like they brain dumped a million potential lyric ideas and then like spun off songs from a lot of them, you know. And then, you know, the the other thing, you know, that I think is like a long setting up is. The cloning and kind of uh, identity plot um, where it, you know, I mean, obviously that's kind of the the premise of, of the season two pilot, but rather than just being a kind of return to status quo, and now we're going to start, you know, kind of from the beginning of like where we were in season one, in season two, Hammer and Public take that theme and run with it for like the rest of the show. Mm-hmm making it be about will Hank and Dean find out what will they, you know, what will be their reaction when they find out what does this make us think about their identity as venture brothers and as like individuals, are they going to be able to make forward progress as developing individuals or are they going to be trapped and then the the final thing that we've kind of touched on earlier in, in this kind of the brotherhood theme is the whole bit about there is another venture and 
using the the theme of you know there's another adventure which is obviously a star wars um as like a way to you know further the discussion of like the legacy the the really kind of torturous legacy of Jonas Venture and what kind of trauma he inflicted rusty and you know by extension before and during their childhoods yeah yeah it's, there's just so much in this episode really one that's worth revisiting for those reasons you know and and i just have to wonder like did the clone thing become because doc and jackson wanted to do an easy rider riff like did one begat the other you know yeah yeah how much of it was virtue into necessity because like you know you can only and i haven't listened the episode commentary uh to see what they have to say about this but like it is really curious you know how much of this was like them setting up if we get to do season two right that it's gonna be this kind of like high wire act without a net because we somehow have to work work our way back into the premise by the end of, of the season. And then once they, you know, they built what six seasons worth of story out of that one twist. Were you watching the show as it was coming out during the season? Christ. I don't remember back to 2004 that well. Cause I, when I was talking with Frank, I was like, this, this is, before I met you and I didn't have a television. So how did I, so I must've watched this after the fact, cause I did not own a television and like, we didn't even live with each other. We didn't live with each other for like the first year we knew each other, but I could have seen it at his house. Thank you to frequent guest of the show and friend of all things, John Arminio. I was looking at the venture, the art of the venture, the make art and making of the venture brothers book, which says they wrote the episode together and they broke it into themes together. And when they wrote it, they already knew they were clones. They started the season thinking they were going to kill the. Oh, that's right. Shit. I remember that, right? They were thinking they were going to kill the boys every episode was originally the joke of it. And then they decided, you know, kind of, in, which kind of reminds me how Eon Flux, that show used the early short Eon Flux yeah, episodes. Yeah, yeah. She died at the yeah, end of them. Yeah, she used to die at the end of every. Yeah. But then they, and then they just never ended up working any of the dust into the story. And so a little bit, a little past halfway through the season, they decided to save it for the finale to do it Easy Rider style where it's kind of harrowing and strange, which, yeah, it succeeded in being harrowing and strange. This is a good observation about how this episode is drawn. Jackson says, everything from the character backstory and the way the longer arcs are connected to pushing the visuals to be less like a cartoon and more like movies we love. I, I think that's really like, especially when you see the closing credits, super clear here. Yeah, the the camera work, that like long dolly shot, or I guess helicopter shot. Jackson says, Hank and Dean's death as a takeoff of Easy Rider, sounds like something we said out loud as a gag, and then it stuck. I must admit, it's not the most elegant story point in the episode. It was kind of thing that had to happen, and we have to get it in there somehow. It couldn't happen during the actual peril of the episode. It had to be a stupid, pointless accident, which, of course, is in line with the movie. In the movie, it's a stupid, pointless, meaningless thing. And, oh, shit, here we go. Sorry, so I had... So this this the song over the credits the the uh, birds pastiche is actually not JG Thornwell it is from Nick DeMeo who is one of the animation timing directors who did the song Wow that is a man of many It talent. is and they really did try to shoot the ending like the movie with lots of the quick cuts and stuff like that 
Doc's camera says, we make these cultural references to movies and things, but, but we appropriate them in a way that if you don't know them, it doesn't matter because we're not like making a joke. Hey, remember Easy Rider? We're making it work for our, our thing. You can know Easy Rider and be reminded of it, but you don't have to. Except I argue that the text is that much richer for knowing it because you could draw on the themes that we throw out here. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. So I was going to answer the the question that you posed earlier. I'm, I'm at Wikipedia to refresh myself as to like when each season came mm -hmm. out. Um, so I definitely was not watching back in 2004 because I didn't own a TV then. Right. I was in undergrad, you know, we didn't have TVs in the dorms, didn't have, I think, more than a basic cable. So I think it would have been when I went to grad school, because I did get a TV and a cable subscription. So I think it must have been like either, you know, season two aired in 2006. So it was the sort of uh, hiatus. And then season three aired starting in 2008. So I think I came in either sometime season two or in season three and then kind of binged my way backwards. And I watched a lot of episodes. I mean, they, they did like reruns of, of previous seasons on Adult Swim sometimes, but they also had them on the Adult Swim website in a very janky... Oh, shit. I think I saw them that way, too. Yeah, I think it was like a, a Java-based player. And I remember that the player would, for whatever reason, um, play the episode because it would, like, chop the episode into, like chapters and then it would play the chapters sometimes out of order that's how i first so saw it. part of the reason why i have like such a strong memory of the show is that i would watch episodes multiple times over trying to get it to play in the right sequence so that makes sense i probably watched some of them on on their website that's wild they really did make it hard for you yeah and so with a jump to the left and a step to the right, we will be concluding this particular episode. If you have other episodes of the Venture Brothers show you'd like us to cover for you, drop us a line. I am on Twitter a little bit too much. E-L-A-N-A -A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Stephen, you're on Twitter probably the right amount. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, almost never these days. I pretty exactly. much use it uh, only for announcements of stuff. You know, read my mentions just to see if anybody's asked me a question or something like that. Twitter, Stephen Atwell. That's Stephen with a V. A-T-T-E-W-E-L-L. -L. More easily be found at Race for the Iron Throne, uh, at WordPress, and at Tumblr.com. Speaking, why don't you tell our listeners if you'll be doing any coverage of the current Game of Thrones prequel TV series? No, I will not. <laughs> because I hated The Dance of the Dragons when I read it in George R. R. Martin's short stories and his history books, and I did not want to go through that again. But, you know, if and when HBO uh, greenlights oh, yeah. Dunkin' Egg, uh, which they are in some phase of the production process, uh, if and when that comes to HBO, I will definitely be covering that because that is more, you know, Westerosi work by George R. R. Martin that I actually do like. Yeah, that will be really wonderful. And look, who the fuck knows what HBO was doing? They just canceled all of their genius animation. I really do feel like the show is in a Schrodinger's box of finale or not at this point. Um, 
I'm not really sure what we can do to support it. So, uh, but anyway, this continues to be Graphic Policy Radio, where we talk about comics and politics and the intersection of geek culture and social change. I know we have another episode of Deep Space Dive, our DS9 spinoff podcast coming up as well. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.